Brethren, we have met to worship and adore the Lord our God. Hi, and welcome to Regret, Repent, Rejoice, Part 2. In the last episode, we took a close look at 18th and early 19th century hymns, both their depth and beauty, as well as their problematic aspects. The current episode will address Southern Harmony, its creator and the singing school movement that brought it about, and the compositional and musical style it and other similar collections contain. This will prepare you for the final episode in the series, where we immerse ourselves in today's singing school, its customs, its singing style, and its challenges in honoring the music without dishonoring groups that are sometimes marginalized in the texts. The first link in the show notes is a beautiful webpage I've created where all of the announcements from my guests and contributors are displayed in an organized and pleasing format. I did not put their information in the show notes. There was so much to share that the show notes looked very messy and uninviting, so please visit sacred9.com slash podguestnews and look for episodes 1, 2, and 3. I promise it's worth the click. I can't resist a brag here. When I was gearing up for the 2018 Regret, Repent, Rejoice concert, I reached out to the final word on all things Southern Harmony, the late Dr. Harry Eskew. He sent me the sweetest letter, a link to which is in the show notes. William Walker's grandson, Earl W. Justice, made all of Walker's notes and artifacts available to Eskew in his research. Here is your critical listening assignment for this episode. I wrote four short interludes. When you hear a bell tone, listen. What you'll be hearing is a short pentatonic melody, which we will discuss toward the end of the episode. Here's the first one. Here we have the singing schools. The Southern Harmony and Musical Companion, called Southern Harmony for short, first published in 1835, was compiled by William Walker, also known as Singin' Billy. However, before we zoom in too closely, let's explore how Southern Harmony and other tune books came to be. Also, Sacred Harp is the tune book that thrives much more today than any other, so I will admittedly be using information about and recordings from modern-day Sacred Harp sings to help familiarize us with Southern Harmony. After all, both tune books come from the same stock at roughly the same time and from brothers-in-law, no less. B.F. White of Sacred Harp and William Walker were married to the Go Lightly sisters. You don't need to know their last name, but I just like saying it. Still, I understand that what is concluded about singing style or culture based on one tune book is not universally true of the other. The late 17th century saw polemics about whether or not it is holy to sing in church. In fact, roughly 150 years before the publication of Southern Harmony, the General Assembly of the General Baptist Church took up the issue in 1689. David W. Music quotes the minutes of that meeting, which state that the singing in church was carnal and unwelcome. Coincidentally, 1689 is also the birth year of one John Tufts, born in Medford, Massachusetts, who bemoaned music illiteracy and wrote the first textbook to solve the problem. His an introduction to the singing of psalm tunes with a collection of tunes in three parts, 
helped start a revival in singing, according to Henry Wilderfoot, to which the 18th century singing school is at least partially indebted. However, most General Baptists were still not singing in church at the beginning of the 18th century, and it wasn't until about a hundred years later that most British Baptist churches advocated for singing in worship, according to David Music. Tune books are not to be confused with hymn books, but it is easy to confuse the two, especially since the title page of Southern Harmony, for example, references hymnals as sources for many of its entries. Such collections were created for the teaching of music reading, not for use in worship services, although George Pullen Jackson seems to indicate that these tune books were used in camp meetings. Further, Harry Eskew reminds us that Southern Harmony, since it contained musical scores, was a companion to the predominantly words-only hymnals of the day. Then the shapes became the tools. The singing schools and shape note tune books came to the South by way of the Northeast. More than a hundred years earlier, Tufts had advocated for a new way of singing, by note, not by rote. Foot reminds us. William Little and William Smith of Albany, New York invented the shapes, which Eskew asserts are a reboot of Elizabethan psalmization and are as follows. The triangle is fa, the circle is sol, the square is la, the diamond is mi. At the beginning of the 19th century, singing school collections began appearing with these shaped notes also called buckwheat, character, and patent notes. The singing school tradition started to remedy the low levels of singing literacy and to quiet the perceived chaos of lined out or rote singing, according to Kerry Miller. The method taught people to sing at sight without having to read pitches or key signatures. Instead of our do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti, do, the singing schools taught Fa, sol, la, fa, sol, la, mi, fa. A thorough explanation, or the rudiments of music, appears at the beginning of these tune books. The singing schools were popular in New England until the finer music of Europe was finding a place there, forcing these tune book sellers with their open fifths and tenor melodies to hit the road. According to Dixon Bruce, most of these tune book creators were from the so-called Southern Uplands. Rural settlements were the market for itinerant singing teachers, Miller claims. While antebellum Southern non-Catholics were planting and plowing, they were also creating a fertile field for the singing school movement to really take hold. The conditions facing a worshiper in the antebellum South helped endear the folk to this no-frills hymn singing style. These were not sophisticated people. Foote discusses the deterioration of singing for these people. First, the settlers were more and more alienated from their English musical heritage. Second, pioneer life did not afford the luxury of poetry and music. Third, their psalm books did not contain printed music, only text. Even if there was printed music, there often weren't enough psalm books to go around. Fourth, some pastors often taught the music by rote, from memory. Knowing these conditions, the music contained in these tune books seems right at home in the South, 
though it was a Bostonian who helped imbue the music with that American medieval austerity. Foote claims that Billings knew compositional rules, but ignored them because he was championing a new American music. However, while church administrations tried to advocate for more sophisticated music, the Southerners, who presumably were devotees of the singing school trend, were not having it. There was a folk song movement on, and the people celebrated that, according to Jackson. In fact, Eskew explains that there are pieces in Southern Harmony that were a marriage of hymn texts and secular tunes that were already established couples before its publication, which we will discuss later. He goes on to state that compilers like Walker newly paired secular tunes to hymn texts specifically for their tune books, and that Walker and his counterparts were often so intimately acquainted with the folk style that they probably wrote new tunes in that idiom. Walker offers little jewels. William Walker was born on May 6, 1809 in Upper South Carolina. He was of Welsh descent. As a youth, he was affiliated with the Welsh Baptist Church of his ancestors. He was probably called Singin' Billy Walker from a very young age. As a child, his mother taught him the tunes That Glorious Day, Solemn Thought, and French Broad, the latter two of which I have arranged in the Regret, Repent, Rejoice concert, which is linked in the show notes. Go and have a listen. Their summits tower toward the skies, but far above them I must dwell, or sink beneath the flames of hell. Walker died on September 24, 1875. He always signed his name William Walker A.S.H., or author, Southern Harmony. According to Eskew, one of Walker's greatest legacies is that he perpetuated Southern folk hymns like Amazing Grace and What Wondrous Love Is This that survive in modern hymn books. Southern Harmony was a huge hit. It was the first shape note book to be sold nationally, according to Eskew and James Downey, who, by the way, was my professor at William Carey College. Over 25 years, it had sold over 600,000 copies, and prior to the Civil War, it was stocked in general stores. Our tune book evolved to contain three main sections. It begins with several pages of the rudiments of music, like most such tune books do. Part 1 mostly contains songs commonly used in worship. Part 2 are more advanced and were used in concerts and singing societies. Part three is reserved for tunes, quote, entirely new, close quote. There have been only five editions. The first edition was in 1835. The second was in 1840, quote, with an appendix, close quote. The third edition was 1846, quote, with an appendix, close quote. The fourth edition was in 1847, quote, improved and enlarged, close quote. The fifth edition was in 1854, quote, thoroughly revised and greatly enlarged, close quote. This was the last time the content of Southern Harmony was updated. Southern Harmony. 
There was another addition in the works, but since South Carolina was one of the first states to secede in the Civil War, the plans were abandoned. Walker published Christian Harmony in 1867, in which the tunes had four parts and used seven shapes instead of four. In the evolution of tune books, natural selection definitely chose Sacred Harp. The 1939, 1966, and 1987 editions of Southern Harmony are facsimile reprints of the 1854 edition. Sacred Harp started adding alto parts to the predominant three-part texture of hymns up to that time. Southern Harmony never made this leap. One can find a Sacred Harp singing in just about any state and many foreign countries any month of the year. This is not so with Southern Harmony, although the most notable Southern Harmony singing, the big singing, still takes place in Benton, Kentucky on the fourth Sunday in May. Music that defies the rules. David Warren still reminds us that around 1800, while big cities were leaning more towards diatonic, purely tonal European melodies, rural and southern areas started leaning on folk ballads and dance tunes to carry the hymn texts, creating so-called folk hymns. In my opinion, this new trend accounts for the many musical quirks contained in Southern Harmony and similar collections. Marini has some thoughts on this. Jeremiah Ingalls is up there in the upper Connecticut Valley, and although he's a Congregationalist and he's Orthodox, they're having a great time with square dances and contra dances and fiddle tunes and whistles, and it's Vermont, you know. That's his environment. And he has no compunction whatsoever in importing that into tunes he's writing with, with lyrics by Watts. If you imagine that composers and compilers who incorporated these interesting, earthy, throwback, rule-defying melodies also wanted to imbue the harmony parts with that same kind of interest, then you might have what is called the concept of dispersed harmony. If you were to look up the definition of that term, you will probably read solely about each voice part being quite a distance from each other intervallically. However, according to my experts, there are other facets of it. If you have been an alto in a church choir, you can probably attest that there are lots of repeated notes in which the composer or arranger is more concerned with the vertical stacking of chords than the linear interest of each voice part. You simply won't find a lot of repeated notes in our tune book. Our experts have a lot to say about dispersed harmony. Let's start with Fulton. Probably the most musically specific thing that you could call them would be dispersed harmony, which is a 19th century term, but it's one that survived to some degree in modern use. And it denotes that kind of uh, fairly horizontal, you know, contrapuntally driven kind of part writing. The actual term of dispersed really comes from these fairly wide open chords as opposed to the close spacing of, of gospel singing, close harmony singing. Dispersed harmony can have impractical consequences like orgies of parallel fifths and octaves. Fifths and octaves are perfect consonances. For two voices to form a perfect fifth and to move in parallel motion, that is, in the same direction, to another perfect fifth is called parallel fifths. That had already been forbidden for hundreds of years before our tune book. Why? 
In all my compositions, I'm very careful to avoid this transgression, although no one need follow part writing rules anymore. However, when I inadvertently write a parallel fifth or octave in a four-part texture, I can hear it when I'm playing it back to myself on the piano, and I don't usually like it unless the parallel fifth or octave is a kind of color that I'm exploiting for its own sake. Why don't I like it, generally speaking? It's hard to explain. Perfect consonances, because they are perfectly tuned together, have a kind of acoustic boost. If you kept a string of them going, they would, in a way, draw attention to themselves when all the parts are supposed to sound independent. Let's contrast by starting with parallel thirds, which are not perfect consonances, once by themselves and then in a four-part harmonic progression. You see, that's just a nice and unobtrusive progression of intervals. Do you agree? Now here's the same with parallel fifths. Do you hear how distinctive and striking that sounds? That's exactly what you don't want, traditionally speaking, when writing hymn harmony parts. Now, in the interest of full transparency, I did not look up why parallel fifths were traditionally forbidden. After all, I'm not trying to prove any kind of thesis here. Look up this phenomenon and see if I'm on the right track. To be fair, though, the examples of parallel fifths I played for you were intentionally over the top. One can find many examples of parallel fifths that are much more inconspicuous. In this style of music, the horizontally driven part writing is so seemingly reckless that sometimes you even find parallel seconds, as in Saint's Delight. Remember our parallel thirds? Well, get a load of this. Parallel thirds are easy. Parallel seconds are not. When I listen to Sacred Heart recordings of this tune, it sounds like the bass part just doubles the tenor. In other words, the bass doesn't seem to be singing the written part, which is notated one whole step or a major second lower. Why? Because that's really hard to do. I, as a professional singer, would really have to think about it. Jesse Carlsberg has noticed this particular example too, as it is identical in modern sacred heart books and doesn't think they sing it as written either. He joins the chorus about dispersed harmony and talks about these discords. The approach to writing this music is a melodic approach. It's an approach where you start with the tenor and then you follow that up with the bass and then you follow that up with the treble. Um, and he does talk about um, harmonizing what are concords and what are discords um, and even like taking some of the you know, the note that's a fifth below the tenor in the bass, but make sure you leave good stuff for your treble part. You know, so it does tell you about real attention paid to um, avoiding discords. Although he also talks about, uh, in a beautiful way, about like the, the dis discord is the acid that makes the sweet so sweet. 
It's a, a style of harmony or, or a philosophy of part writing that definitely permits discord and even acknowledges a, a key, like a key role for discord. Marini has further thoughts about dispersed harmony and these dissonances. A composer and singing master is going to do much better with his students if he has a singable, interesting enough melody on each part. The idea of dispersed harmony is that you write for independent lines. He's not following rules of harmonic composition, uh, a chord in cathedral. He's not doing any of that. He's just writing parts that are going to work for the singers and let the chips fall where they may. He construes this as a very American, independent, innovative, freeing technique. You could argue that the practice of dispersed harmony produced an, an American compositional style that features odd intervals and clashes that simply aren't there in the English background. And it's, it's because of the prominence of the singing school over the kind of teaching that was influenced through the, the Church of England that produced kind of country parish music in England. That's all pretty rectilinear, pretty Baroque, pretty tame. Great stuff, but pretty tame. This is just kind of going out there. And I think there is a kind of an aesthetic sensibility in the early New England stuff anyway that it, that is kicking out the jams of this received style and having a really, really good time with it. This is that tune, Saint's Delight, sung at United Convention at Mount Pisgah, September 8, 2007. Thank you, Nathan Reese. The passage in question goes by too fast for you to notice whether a parallel second is being executed as written, especially without looking at the score. But I mainly just want you to hear this. Another consequence of dispersed harmony are prodigal thirds, my cute way of saying that the thirds of chords are often missing. In so-called classical music, 
open fifths were a no-no at the time of our collection and had been for a couple of hundred years. This lends a kind of medieval feel. Listen to Arbacucci from the United Sacred Harp Convention, Fife, Alabama in 1959. This is from the Alan Lomax collection. Do you hear that there is something sparse at the ends of big phrases as well as at the end of the piece? What you're missing is the third of the chord. The third is what makes a chord or key major or minor. When the third is high, it's major. When it's low, it's minor. And yes, as much as learned musicians try to deny it, any reasonable person will sense more weight, sadness, or melancholy when hearing minor. I think it has to do with the up and down position of the third in major and minor, respectively. When you are happy or content, what do you do? You smile? your brows raise, things are lifting as the third does in major. When you feel sadness, you frown, your brows furrow, and your shoulders slouch. Things that are sinking, just as the thirds do in minor. In any case, Carlsberg, speaking much more eloquently than I, talks about his affinity for this play between major and minor found in this repertoire. Sacred harp and Southern harmony in books like this, they because their harmonies also are so frequently dyadic and triadic in, in combination, the minor songs in particular do have this real spare sonority that's different from minor art music, um, where there, there are just these spare dyads, and, and you'll move from the tonic dyad <laughs> to um, perhaps the dyad built on the relative major, and there's so much just drama in that shift in that there's this major-minor ambiguity 
which comes up in many of William Walker's songs in particular. It seems to be a place where that just was what he heard in his mind. To Meyer, there's something so emotionally complex about that. To be classified as a chord, one usually needs three notes, or a triad, the root, the third, and the fifth. The dyad that Carlsberg is talking about is a kind of implied chord made of only two notes in which, you guessed it, the third is missing. If you were to look at modern hymnals, you would undoubtedly find a clear preference for major tunes. Back in the time of our mid-19th century tune book, this is not the case. I haven't counted, but I would assert that there are more minor tunes than major in Southern Harmony. A great example of this is On Jordan Stormy Banks, which was originally in minor, but appears as major in modern hymnals. Here is minor. Here is major. Do you hear the difference? By the late 19th century, minor hymns had pretty much fallen out of use. Do you remember last episode when we talked about the earthy, gritty hymns of this period? Well, as we move into the later 19th century, there is a really sentimental, florid sensibility that permeates the poetry. I believe that major keys were increasingly seen as a better vehicle for that kind of verse. Earlier I said minor-ish and mode. Why don't I just say minor key? Well, it's not so simple. Since our singing school composers and arrangers were thumbing their noses at rules of traditional tonality, they generally did not raise the seventh and minor as a leading tone to clearly return to the home key, as had been customary for a couple of hundred years in traditional European conventions. Instead, they often kept the seventh lowered. Let's use Scarborough Fair for this. Listen for the word of. She was a true love of mine. And she was a true love of mine. The first example contains a lowered seventh, the second as a raised seventh, leading tone. Do you hear the difference? Further, Classes in the singing schools often raised the sixth in natural minor. In the following examples, listen for the last syllable of rosemary. Are you going to Scarborough Fair? Parsley, sage, rosemary, and The first example contains the raised sixth. The second keeps it lowered. The lowered seventh and the raised sixth spell out the Dorian mode. 
Fulton has a timely anecdote. There's certainly a tradition in sacred harp singing in particular of singing tunes that are technically written in natural minor, in Dorian instead. It is, again, you know, kind of a, a geographically diverse sort of practice. I have a friend who uh, went to singing school with Jeff and Shelby Shepard, who were these you know, very well-known Alabama sacred harp singers. I forget if it was Jeff or it was Shelby, but one of them very firmly believed in the practice of singing the raised sixth, um, whereas the other one very firmly did not. And so they were always, you know, a half step apart from each other <laughs> when they were singing, you know, any kind of tune in, in natural minor. Another distinctive element to the music is that there are gapped scales everywhere. We're accustomed to diatonic scales, where there are seven different pitches for each scale, and in that scale there are two half steps and the rest whole steps. A major scale is a diatonic scale in which the two half steps have an attraction to each other. Let's start with the fourth scale degree's attraction to the third scale degree. In tonal music, you can't have this without this. The other main attraction is the seventh scale degree's attraction to the tonic or the home pitch in the scale. You can't have this without this. Gap scales are very different. They have fewer than seven notes in the scale. Pentatonic scales are the most common gap scales in the music we're discussing, so I'll talk about them from now on. As its name asserts, there are five notes in the scale. There are no half steps. You know how a piano has black notes grouped in twos and threes? Well, if you played a group of two followed by an adjacent group of three, you'd have a pentatonic scale. All the short interludes you've heard after the bell tones are pentatonic. Are you starting to hear what that sounds like? The lack of half steps in a pentatonic scale means that there is no real gravitational pull within the scale. Here is Norton. It's all folky not composed in the way that people are looking for big resolutions using the half steps. The things that are missing in pentatonicism are the things that define key. I asked our experts why this might sound American when pentatonic scales are also a feature of other lands such as Asia. Here's Fulton. I think there there is a historiographical projection of Americanness upon it, <laughs> if that makes any sense. Similarly, Norton isn't quick to categorize pentatonicism as going with one culture over another. We covered the term ethnocentric last episode. Is this me being ethnocentric, projecting my own heritage on things? I love what Norton says here. I think that there's something... Um ancient and profound sounding about gapped scales. I've spent a lot of time looking at non-Western music, especially in this music and healing class. And so I have to confess that for me, pentatonicism doesn't sound particularly Southern. For me, the fascinating question is, why have so many cultures gravitated to gapped scales? There must be something fundamentally human about it because it's everywhere. I think it feels like the mother tongue. At the risk of this episode being a bit tedious, I wanted to demonstrate ways in which our tune book is full of features, open fifths, parallel fifths, modality, gap scales, 
that would not be found in common practice music since about 1600. As a result, its tunes and harmonies have an ancient and otherworldly feeling to them. This is ironic when we consider what Marini said about the singing school composer adopting these eccentricities as a kind of fresh and new Americanism. Also, I think you can hear by listening to some of the Sacred Harp singing examples I've played, the raw singing style is the perfect conduit for melodies and part writing in these tune books. So if this style of music was a kind of birth of a new American sound, then the success of the same in modern sacred harp singings, where your demographic and belief system are immaterial, is a renaissance indeed. Join me next time where we talk about the singing style, philosophy, and particular conventions of today's shape note singers, and how they navigate hymns that are decidedly religious and at times highly offensive. With sweet manna all around. By the way, each of the arrangements we performed in Regret, Repent, Rejoice contained one verse virtually untouched, just as written from Southern Harmony. The concert link is in the show notes. If you are in New Orleans on March 19th, please join us for Sacred Nine Project Beautiful Isle of Somewhere, where you can hear 13 of my own curious arrangements of gospel hymns and spirituals. Link in the show notes. Do you have an idea for a project or episode? Do you want to host one of our existing projects at your university, institution, or museum? Do you want a custom project built around a topic that you think would resonate with Sacred Nine Project? Do you want to talk about accessing some of my musical arrangements for solo singers or choirs? Do you want to talk further about an episode? Please write to me at sacrednineproject at gmail.com. That's sacred, the numeral nine, project at gmail.com. To learn more about us, visit sacrednine.com slash about. Thanks for listening.